Please read with me our scripture today. It comes from Genesis 50, 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The word of the Lord. I just want to take a moment and uh, thank the, the worship team and the hard work they've put in over the last couple of weeks to be able to still provide a worship service here at our facility. And as you can see, we changed our angle uh, for our worship service and really wanted to give you all a sense that you could almost feel like you were here, even though you can't be. Uh, we do have, um, by God's uh, goodness and kindness, just really an incredible sanctuary to worship in each and every week. So hopefully you guys feel like you can have a little bit of a taste of it uh, this morning as that's kind of our, our backdrop for, for this week. Um, and I want to thank you all just for your resilience over the last number of weeks. Um, it really has been challenging in many ways to uh, go from being able to gather anyone and everyone here every Sunday morning to not being able to be together. And so you guys have all been so resilient in, in trying to figure out all the technology we're trying to offer to keep our, our community together as a church, um, whether it's through Zoom or the live feed or whatever. So just thank you for your guys' patience and your resilience as we are kind of figuring out what it means to be the church in this season in our country right now. But I know for a fact we are committed now more than ever um, as a staff and elders uh, to do as everything we can to be the church and still keep our relationships and encouragements of each other intact. Um, so again, thank you for this. As I kind of get into the sermon this morning, um, I'm not sure how you all feel, uh, but to me, our situation uh, with the spread of COVID-19 seems to only create more and more uncertainty uh, even in my own heart and my own life. And yet I think there is something uh, for us in all this uncertainty. Now I'm sure even within your own homes and relationships and friends, uh, you have very different responses to uncertainty, right? Uh, some of us immediately focus on the positives and the possibilities that uncertainty can bring. Uh, maybe that's because uh, perhaps we're concerned about the bad possible outcomes and are comfortable with it, so we go right to the positives. Some of us, though, allow ourselves to get into maybe a really bad mental place where we can really only see the worst and something like hope seems like a fairy tale. For me, I have to admit, uh, when uncertainty reveals itself, my immediate reaction oftentimes is to try and fix the problem, to try to fix it, go into fix-it mode. I am okay admitting usually that something might be, oops, sorry, that something might be really bad. Like, I'm usually okay trying to admit that. 
Um, but I do not, once I can admit something is bad, I do not uh, do really well kind of leaning into this notion of lament. Uh, when lament is oftentimes precisely what's needed when there's uncertainty. I often jump right over lament and go into the fix-it mode. But really, lament is the best posture to open ourselves up to the hope found in this time of uncertainty, the hope found in the promises of God. And this is what we have to lean on now more than ever are the promises of God during times of uncertainty. When COVID-19 led us to no longer be able to gather here uh, as a worshiping body on Sunday morning, I really didn't let myself be very sad. Instead, I went right into the mode of, we aren't canceling church, we're going to continue everything, we just have to reimagine how things are going, and I went right into what I just referred to as that fix-it mode, and immediately trying to figure out how everything's just going to be fine and okay. I went immediately into a space of trying to explain why COVID-19 is actually an opportunity, and Surely it is. Surely there are opportunities there. But then, in the midst of that immediate reaction and trying to come up with all the opportunities this could present us, I began studying for this sermon. I began really saturating myself again into the book of Genesis. And in that process, I was forced to see how much uncertainty there is throughout the story of Genesis. And particularly as we're going to look this morning toward the end of the book as we finish out Genesis today, chapters 37 through 50. From the moment Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden all the way to the present stories we're going to look at today at the end of the book of Genesis, there is a perpetual sense of uncertainty. Now, the story of Genesis is not one just of uncertainty, but also of hope and promise. But intertwined throughout the book of Genesis is both the sense of promise and hope, but also uncertainty. What is the promise? The promise is that no matter how much uncertainty is brought into our world, and we see a lot of it in Genesis no matter how much uncertainty is brought into our world, whether through our own sinfulness or selfishness or natural disasters, God will bring good. And that's the promise we have as the book of Genesis comes to a close, that nothing can happen in this world to outdo the goodness of God. And we lean on his promises that that is true. Just to re, kind of remind everyone, our series title for this long series we're going to be doing, over a year series, called The Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. I said this in my announcements last week, but it really amazes me to think what God was already doing, even in the heart of Pastor Gerald as he was thinking about this sermon series, well before we were getting news of the spread of COVID-19, we were planning this sermon series and to talk about the story of the Bible and then the healing of the world is really a beautiful time for us to look at Scripture through that lens that it is in the story of the Bible that we find the potential for healing 
in our world. And as we know, as Pastor Gerald started us out in this series, that the story starts well. There's a lot of certainty and good certainty. God, as, as Gerald told us uh, in his first couple sermons, God created humanity in his image. He created them as priest kings and priest queens. And so Adam and Eve's calling was to serve God and trust God for life and wisdom within the Garden of Eden. But their influence was supposed to actually even be beyond the Garden of Eden. They were to meditate, reflect, and extend the life of God. So meditate on the life of God, reflect the life of God, and extend the life of God even beyond the Garden of Eden all the way to the ends of the earth. And so this was this hopeful beginning that the joy and the beauty that was experienced in the garden was going to be to the ends of the earth. But unfortunately, very early in the story, uncertainty enters. Very early in the story, we meet the antagonist, the entrance of the serpent, Satan. And Satan, who was envious of the role God, the creator, gave to Adam and Eve as the priest king and priest queens over the created world, devised a plan to deceive Adam and Eve. This antagonist, Satan, knew that God had given this priest king and priest queen explicit commands. And so he decides as a serpent to deceive Adam and Eve into thinking, actually, that God doesn't really know what's best for them. So Adam and Eve, in being deceived, disobey God very early on in the story. And the reality of uncertainty begins to quickly unravel. As a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, their relationship with God is broken. They are removed from the Garden of Eden. And now they know evil. And this knowledge of evil that they now have has a terrible ripple effect on all humanity. You see, as the story develops in the early chapters of Genesis chapter 5, you see this repeated phrase in chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death is now all over the world as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. And then as Pastor John brought us to the flood, we see in Genesis 6 this statement, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, if we're thinking in terms of certainty and uncertainty, clearly the world is at a place in the story. As we as readers read this story that God has given to us, we see just a complete scene of uncertainty. The world has unraveled. And so questions can come to us as we think about the early story being developed. Will God redeem this situation? This has gone so bad so fast Will God redeem the situation? Will God restore 
the beauty of the life that was intended to be experienced in the Garden of Eden? Will the offspring of Eve or the offspring of the serpent win? After Adam and Eve's removal from the Garden of Eden, the question is presented to us. Will God bring about a way for humanity, for us, to once again live forever with him in a newly created world, saturated with his presence, with his love, and with his peace? The uncertainty around the early chapters of Genesis 3 to 6 really bring those questions to a point, to a sharp point. But what's beautiful about even this beginning stages of Genesis is that even if we go back to the chapter where Adam and Eve sin and God pronounces judgments, we already see promise. Even though uncertainty and the brokenness and sinfulness of humanity begins to be on full display, there is a promise of God. Pastor Gerald talked to about this promise in Genesis chapter 3, 15. And, and just to simply say, God promises that the offspring of Eve will be the victors. That he will not allow evil to win in the end. But instead, God will, in fact, restore the world. The flood is evidence of that, that God has not given up on the created order. Even in the midst of the uncertainty, God in his goodness extends his mercy to provide hope. And then we see, just really quickly, as we kind of get caught up to speed, we see the, the focus of this offspring of Eve come into a little bit more focus as we see in Genesis chapter 12. We're starting to wonder as we get through Genesis 10 and 11, whatever happened to this promise back in Genesis chapter 3 that the offspring of Eve would be victors and peace and love and forgiveness would be the final experience for humanity. We, be we can begin to doubt that in Genesis 10 and 11. But we get to 12 and God brings it back into focus again, this promise. He says to Abraham, through your family, Abraham, I'm going to bring a blessing to the entire creation. I am going to bless all the families of the earth through your family. And simply, sometimes the Old Testament can be very hard to understand, and sometimes it's hard to follow the flow of the storyline as it continues on. But the very simple storyline that it's through Abraham's family that God is going to restore the world. That is the line that's going to run through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And it's for those of us that know as the story develops, it is through Abraham's line that Jesus comes. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God will restore and provide forgiveness. But even in Abraham's time, as we kind of see this thread of uncertainty woven in, God makes this Amazing promise to Abraham, but then even in his old age, him and his wife, Sarah, still do not have a child. And so there's uncertainty. How can his family be the means through which God brings about restoration and eventually brings about the person of Jesus when they can't even have an initial child? But as we know, God does provide 
a child for Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And this promise, as we kind of jump up now to uh, our current section, we see the promise, though, that God is with Abraham's family, with Isaac, with Jacob, Isaac's son, Jacob. And this brings us to Jacob's son. But very clearly throughout, and all the ups and downs of the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is this repeated promise throughout the book of Genesis that God is going to remain faithful to his promise to do something unique and powerful and special through Abraham's family. And that is to bring restoration to all the earth. This brings us now to our current section that we're looking at the end of Genesis. We're closing out Genesis. That's why hopefully it's helpful just to kind of do a little quick catch up uh, as we come to the close of the first book of the Bible in our sermon series here. But even now, as we are brought to this final section of Genesis, we get the focus now on Jacob's sons. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, and now Jacob's, the focus is on Jacob's 12 sons. Let me pause for a moment, though, before we kind of get into this section on Joseph's, uh, excuse me, Jacob's sons. Maybe this all can feel like a fairy tale to you. What are all these stories? Or this can seem just like stories, even if they're true, of people long ago that have very little or nothing to do with our present situation today. What I want to try to help us see, though, is that they did experience in different ways, but the like depth of uncertainty and brokenness that we still experience today. The reality is, is we are still looking for that hope. We are still longing for God to bring back certainty of his love, the certainty of his peace, the certainty of joy. And so while maybe this can all seem like fairy tales, it's not. Or maybe these are, you can just go, okay, it's not a fairy tale, it's real, but it's so distant and disconnected, but it's not. So much of the brokenness of their stories allow us to open ourselves up to our own brokenness and the brokenness that's around us. It's fair to say that we are looking for healing today. We know all too well the pull towards self-centeredness and the temptation to think we know better than our Heavenly Fathers, our Heavenly Father, just like the patriarchal stories in the book of Genesis. So just like the families in Genesis, we are doomed without the gracious promises of God to redeem, to forgive, to restore. Our story today, as we look at the sons of Jacob, our story today does not begin actually though building confidence in the reader that God actually is going to use this family to redeem and restore. We're starting to get a picture of Jacob's sons and we think as we look at it, this is a dysfunctional family. There's a lot of dysfunction in Jacob's family throughout this story. In fact, most of what I will be describing for you as we quickly go through this story will probably create more uncertainty potentially that God will actually use this family to bring healing to the world. The dysfunction is so much so that it can almost feel as if the author is trying to tell us 
that no matter how much uncertainty we as humans bring about and create in this world, God will still bring good. His promise, the world that he created in the opening accounts of chapters of Genesis, that when he stood back after all his creation said, this is very good. He promises to bring that goodness and more eventually one day. But as we look at Jacob's sons and we think of, Je- we think of God doing it through these, this family, there's no doubt that we can think this does not feel like a certain path toward redemption. As we're brought back, if you have your Bibles open, you can turn to Genesis 37 and we'll kind of be flipping around a little bit. We're brought into the opening scene of Jacob's sons. And remember, as we, before we kind of go into 37, remember Jacob has children with four different women. Of those four, Rachel is clearly Jacob's favorite. But Jacob has 10 other sons before Rachel mothers Joseph and Benjamin. But Rachel is clearly Jacob's favorite. And then we find out that Joseph is also his favorite son. And so the story begins by letting us know that Joseph, Jacob's 11th son, is clearly Jacob's favorite child. And Jacob makes this favoritism clear by giving Joseph a very nice robe. This robe is said to have many colors. There was no doubt left in Jacob's other son's mind that Joseph was the favorite child. Joseph's 10 older brothers hated him because of this. Sometimes you can maybe read through that and think, oh, it's a different time, wasn't a big deal. But the author doesn't let us get past that. The author very clearly states for us that his brothers hated him because of this. This was not overlooked. It wasn't the like sarcastic joke that this is the favorite kid that probably all families have, right? This was real. He was really the favorite kid and his brothers really hated him for it. Imagine the dynamics. You knew your dad loved your other brother's mother more than your mother. And then your dad made it very clear that he loved her son more than you and all your other brothers. Clearly, we can't even begin to imagine what the day-to-day impact on this home, that would have created on this home. On top of all this favoritism that we see, and it really shouldn't surprise us in some ways of, of Jacob, we see some tender moments of Jacob, but then we see a lot of conniving of Jacob in the book of Genesis. And so on top of all of this favoritism, we are told, now imagine this, this favorite child. We are told that this favorite child, Joseph, had dreams that he would rule one day. He would rule over his brothers and his parents. And of course, this information was too good for Joseph to keep to himself. He felt that he had to tell his brothers. He was sure to let them know that he will one day rule over them based on these dreams that he had had. Now, the author's already told us that 
Uh, Joseph's brothers hate him. I'm assuming this kind of information just increased their hatred because we actually find out that the hatred increased so much that they wanted to end his life. This is how, this is, I keep hitting that. This is how real uh, this story is, this hatred is for his brothers. The hatred that Joseph's brothers had for him grew so intense that they wanted to take his life. Well, long story short, to kind of bring things up to speed, we know that they didn't end up taking Joseph's life through some convincing of some other brothers. Uh, what ended up happening is they sold Joseph off to some travelers, and Joseph ends up in Egypt. And so there's real implications. Jacob, Jacob's affection and love for one son over and against the others had real implications. And Joseph's telling his brothers as he wears his coat of many colors that he's going to one day rule over them as the 11th child had real implications. They were so indignant against him that they sold him off and Joseph ends up in Egypt. In the meantime, that's in chapter 37. In the meantime, we get brought to chapter 38. One of the brothers, Judah, is given a whole chapter. He's given the whole attention of chapter 38. I will not go into the details of Judah's story in chapter 38, but I'll summarize it by simply saying, Judah is exposed. Judah is exposed for his infidelity, his lying, and his hypocrisy. And this has a direct, again, a direct effect on his family. Judah's own family. I guess now might be a good time uh, to do an uncertainty check. <laughs> How is our uncertainty level at this point that this is actually the family that God is going to use to provide redemption to the world, to fulfill the promises in Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of Eve is going to bring, through the offspring of Eve, God is going to bring restoration to the world. Well, clearly it's Jacob's 12 sons, right? I think if we do an uncertainty check, and if we're honest, this does not seem like the right family for God to use. We could probably even create in our own mind, in our own story writing capabilities, a more fitting family than this. But the story of God's plan to heal the world through the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while not feeling very sure-footed at this point, is the family that God plans to use. In the midst of intense uncertainty, human sinfulness, God is at work. God is not defeated by our own intentions of evil. As a reminder, as we read at the end, Joseph reflected at the end of Genesis, what humans intend for evil, God intends for good. So let's go back to Joseph, though. We, we see that he's the favorite child. We see he gets sold off into Egypt because his brother hate the favoritism so much. And then we get this weird little chapter of Judah's brokenness on full display. But then we go back to Joseph. And we'll try to just kind of quickly go through um, some of the rest of the Joseph story. 
Even though Joseph was sent to Egypt, we see in chapter 39 four different times where it is clearly articulated that the Lord is with Joseph. And these, are, these come to us as like moments of hope that even in the midst of all the uncertainty check we just did, in the midst of all the uncertainty, we see that God is still doing something profound and he's staying connected to the broken stories of Jacob's 12 sons. He stays close to Joseph. Even while Joseph was sold off into Egypt, we see that he comes to an officer's house. This officer was an officer of the king of Egypt. And we find out very quickly uh, that Joseph becomes in favor of this officer. His name is, the officer's name is Potiphar. And it's interesting that this random Jew comes into this high-ranking official in Egypt and immediately finds favor. How does that happen? How does it happen that Joseph immediately finds favor and we still see positive movement going forward? Well, we see in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. That's been God's promise from the very beginning of the covenant, I will be with you. And he became, Joseph, a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master even saw, according to verse 3 of chapter 39, that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph has now this massive influence over the whole household of Potiphar. Potiphar trusts him and sees that God is uniquely with Joseph in a way unlike anyone else. And so we see, even in the midst of the uncertainty, in the story as it develops, that God is still at work. He has not given up on his promise. But the uncertainty begins to continue to unfold, and hardship for Joseph continues. Joseph is misunderstood in an interaction with Potiphar's wife, and in the end, Joseph is sent to prison. Just when we thought there was momentum, more uncertainty comes, and Joseph is sent to prison. But just when the uncertainty builds, the promise of God comes again. God never leaves us without his promises. Look at verse 21 of chapter 39. Even in prison, the Lord is with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Even in the midst of the uncertainty, God reveals himself to be a God of steadfast, unfailing love. And gave, God gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so we see here in a number of ways, in, as uh, the chapter ends, again, because the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph was even made to have some success even while in prison. And once again, in the midst of the uncertainty, God gives promises and glimpses of hope. And once again, we see there is, no, there is nothing too uncertain for God to not use. God is working in the midst of the evil intentions of Joseph's brother. I'm going to try to keep going quick through this. 
while Joseph is in prison, he's been given this ability by God as God protects him to interpret people's dreams. And this word even gets to the king of Egypt who has two disturbing dreams and he's not sure what these dreams mean. And so eventually Joseph gets to the place where he is in front of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and he's able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He's able to interpret the king of Egypt's dreams. And so the king of Egypt is so overwhelmed by Joseph's wisdom and insight that was given to him by God that he eventually puts Joseph in second command of all of Egypt. So he goes from being in a pit thrown by his brothers into a pit, sold off to slavery, goes into Egypt, ends up becoming in command of an officer's home, and then is now second in command of the entire country of Egypt. Well, part of what Joseph interpreted in Pharaoh's dreams was that there was going to be seven years of abundant produce, followed then by seven years of abundant famine. So because God gave interpretation to Joseph, the king of Egypt asked Joseph then to prepare the country for this by saving extra food during the time of abundance so they would actually have extra food in the time of famine. Well, as you can imagine, the famine extends to Joseph's other brothers, to his father, Jacob, and the 11 other brothers. So those brothers, and we'll kind of keep this quick, I'm not going to go through the whole interaction, those brothers end up coming to Egypt to find food during the famine. During the seven years of famine, they had to come to Egypt to get food only to find out that Joseph's dreams were right back in chapter 37. The king of Egypt actually put not only Joseph second in command of all of Egypt, but he also put Joseph in charge of distributing the food. And sure enough, they come into contact with Joseph who they had not seen for a long, long time. And in fact, J- excuse me, Joseph now is the one ruling over his family. And given everything that Joseph had been brought through, he provides this profound reflection on his life that was read for us by Shelby at the end of chapter 50. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? So his brothers were concerned that Joseph would want to be revengeful He says, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people, that the family through which God promised to fulfill restoration should be kept alive as they are today. And we see in the midst of all the evil intentions of humanity through the story of Joseph that God still brings about goodness and the fulfillment of his promise. I want to quickly reflect, though, as we end. What about Judah? What about Judah? Why was Judah all of a sudden, in this whole story that's so dominated by Joseph from 37 to 50, why does the author give us a whole chapter to just highlight how messed up Judah was? and expose all of his weaknesses. None of us would want to have all of our worst weaknesses exposed in an entire chapter of the Bible. And what's actually more complexing is that if you jumped to the end of the book, chapter 49, 
We're told about Judah's involvement in selling off Joseph. We're then in chapter 38 told about uh, exposed Judah's weaknesses and sinfulness and wickedness. But then if you jump ahead to chapter 49, we have these profound blessings that Jacob gives to all 12 of his sons. But what's interesting to note in those blessings is that there's two sons that get significantly longer and better blessings than the other 10. One, as you might suspect, is Joseph. But the other is Judah. But what we know of Judah, just through chapter 37 and 38, compared with chapter 49, would make us think, why in the world is Judah all of a sudden given these amazing blessings? Listen to these blessings. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Now, if we would have just put in Joseph's names instead of Judah, that actually would have sounded totally accurate and right. Your brother shall praise you. Your father's son shall bow down to you. But it's Judah. Judah is a lion's cub in the blessing of Jacob. This is where we get the title given to Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then it goes on at the end of the blessing. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And there we see it's actually through Judah's line that God is going to fulfill the promise to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, the obedience of the peoples. And it's interesting. And so how do we fill in the middle? I won't take all the time now to go through that because there's so many things to follow. If you now go back and read what we think of as the Joseph story, go back to chapter 37 and read it through the lens of the Judah story, we find a beautiful transformation in the life of Judah. He goes from selling off his brother to this very exposed broken chapter about him to then in the end of the day being the brother and as we read in chapters 30 or excuse me 43 and 44 the one who emerges that's willing to offer himself to ensure the safety of his youngest brother Benjamin I'm not going to go back again through all the story I encourage you to reread it even today or tomorrow, to reread this through the lens of Judah. But what we see here very quickly is that through the mainline story of Joseph is this understory of Judah, that we see some profound things of his brokenness at the beginning and then some profound things of hopeful promises at the end. But then if you go back and read it through, you see this beautiful, very broken, but redeemed Judah that Jacob his father, then said, it's through your line the Messiah will come. And what do we see in all this in conclusion? What do we see in all of this? That no matter what the gravity or expanse or depth of uncertainty, and whether that uncertainty is created by just our own evil intentions or not, there is no evil too strong for God to bring about good. 
And we see that it's actually precisely how he works. He works with the depth of brokenness of a Judah to bring about something beautiful. That in fact, God is going to stay true to his promises to use the family of Abraham, particularly through the line of Judah, to bring the Son of God, to bring Jesus of Nazareth. It is through Judah's line that Jesus comes and reveals to us what God is really like and what God is really about. And so in the midst of uncertainty all around us, this is really what I have found so troubling to myself is sometimes I think about the uncertainty in my life and a lot of my uncertainties are months out or a year out. I don't have to worry about it today. And then all of a sudden, we're now forced to think about the daily numbers of spread of COVID-19. And we're, we're being, I'm being pushed to a place of living in uncertainty. And I have to push myself to be willing to lament the evil that comes through something like this. But not to the extent that I can't see the promises of God. And so we as a church, as we continue to go through this phase, may the story of Genesis, of God's promise, as it develops all the way into Jacob's son, we see throughout uncertainty. And if we can tend to be, want to, want to see the worst in everything, we can walk away with just uncertainty. But if we have eyes of faith to see that God is at work beautifully throughout it and at work in the most broken places of the uncertainty to still bring about good. The end of Genesis, Genesis ends in many ways the way Genesis starts. When God sits back on day seven and says, everything is very good. And amidst all the uncertainty, Joseph declares that God will intend through all the brokenness of our world to bring about a good world once again. And the question I have for you as you're watching this morning, are you on that path? Are you on that path to find the goodness of God? The way you find the goodness of God is through his son, Jesus. He is the one that ultimately is the one to bring about forgiveness, hope, and restoration. Well, I hope you will find ways online, whether through Facebook or our website, to connect with us if you have any questions about how this story can be your story, how the story of God's redemption can be a story that redeems your life. We as a staff and elders would be happy to take all the time we can to share that with you. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you that in the midst of my own brokenness, you have provided forgiveness and redemption for me. I was not deserving but your love is steadfast. And so, Father, I pray that this steadfast love would be experienced by everyone watching this service.
would even now, by your spirit, you work in someone's life who has never experienced your love to experience it in a new way today. May we turn to your son, Jesus, with whom there's forgiveness of sins and new hope. In Jesus, all the promises of God are yes. We pray this in Jesus' name.